I think that's it for my announcements. We are moving now to the book of Romans, to the book of Romans. And this morning, what I want to do is, you know, if you've been with us before, you know I normally have an outline here on the left side of your bulletin, and there's no outline. It just says an introduction to Romans. What I'm going to do is just briefly introduce you to the book this morning. That's what I want to do. I didn't want to try to fit this into a message and jumping into the text because I knew I would never be able to to get it done. I know Tim's daughter would like me to speak longer, but most of you don't want me to speak longer than I already do. <laughs> and I understand that. I get it. So we'll dive into the first chapter next week. And because we're just doing an introduction today, we'll probably be most likely be finished a little earlier than normal. And I know that will come as a real shock to most of you. So I want to prepare that for you, prepare you for that right now if we do finish early. Okay. Oh, one more, one more announcement I forgot in case you're wondering. My wife is not with us today. Many of you know that she had her fifth knee surgery this last Wednesday, and she is recovering and in a lot of pain but getting better every day. So I am thankful for your prayers and just ask you to continue to pray for her recovering. All right, so if I were to ask you, if I were to ask you what your favorite football or basketball or baseball or hockey or soccer team is, or what your favorite TV show or movie is, or what your favorite place to vacation is, certain, certainly the majority of you would have an answer. And if I asked you to tell me why, give me a few reasons that particular thing is your favorite, you would no, no doubt be able to give me a long list of reasons why that's your favorite football team, Right? Am I right? Am I on the right track so far with some of you? Good. Now, what if I asked you out of the 66 books that make up the Bible, which book is your favorite? Would you be able to select one? And if you could, there's a little bit of chatter out there. That's good. And if you could, what reasons would you give for choosing that particular book as your favorite? Now, let me ask the question this way, maybe just to drive it home a little more. If a new law was passed in our country, I'm not suggesting it will be, but if it was that you could only occupy or possess one book of the 66 books that we find in the Bible, which one would you have, which one would you choose, and why? Now, unfortunately, I think too many Christians... And I'm not talking about new Christians, those who've just found out there was a Bible. Or maybe they knew about it, but they've never really even looked into it. They haven't read it. I'm not talking about that, new Christians. I'm talking about people who have been around in Christianity for a while, have been around the church, have been even Christians for a while. Unfortunately, I think, speaking of those people, they might have a hard time selecting one book of the Bible as their favorite. And not because they love them all equally. That would be an easy way out, right? I can't choose one. I mean, how could you choose one? They're all God's word. They're all so wonderful. Well, listen, when I go to the ice cream store, I love them all, but I'm choosing one. There are one or two that I like a little bit more than all the other ice. I'll take them all. Don't get me wrong. But many would have a hard time. And the reason they would have a hard time is because they are probably not familiar enough with the contents of the 66 books to be able to choose or have a preference of one over the other. But, when it comes to sports, or entertainment, or recreation, it is clear, abundantly clear, that generally speaking, even for Christians, they can not only tell you their favorite, no problem with that, they'll tell you their favorite, And they will also give you multiple reasons to support their their preference. Now, let me ask you something. What do you think that says about our culture's priorities? What do you think it says? What do you think it says about what is really important to us? I'm not down on... If you know me, you know I'm not down on 
sports teams. I'm a huge Laker fan. I'm embarrassed to say that right now, but I am a huge, <laughs> huge Laker fan. And, and I love recreation. And I dig movies and I watch TV and have favorite shows. But I just think there's something wrong when I can ask of a Christian, hey, what's your favorite football team? And immediately, man, boom, they have it. I may not even have to ask because they're wearing the jersey. The church even. (laughs) And that's okay. It's okay, guys. It's okay. But they're wearing the jersey. They're enthusiastic, right? But then if I were to ask maybe that Christian, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Um... You mean there's more than one book in the Bible? I don't really, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't really know. Beloved, and this is the part, because we're just doing an introduction to Romans. This is the part where I just want to kind of grab you a little bit. If Christians would commit themselves to knowing the word of God like they know sports and entertainment and recreation, then I could promise you that they and the world would be radically transformed and changed for the better. One amen. Thank you, Brother Edgar. Thank you. 75 on Wednesday. Right? This coming Wednesday? Wow. He's been around for a while. So that amen really counts to me. It really counts. Amen. That's right. We give our time and attention to so many things and allow one of the most important things, that is the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Holy Bible, to be crowded out by all these other things, beloved. We allow it to be crowded out. But back to the topic of favorites. During my ordination exam, it was a grueling public exam that I underwent at our sending church, Foothill Bible Church, lasted, I think, three hours of just me up here being hit with question after question by several pastors. And it's designed to to determine my readiness or if I was ready for the ministry. Did I know the Bible? And was I ready to minister to people and be a shepherd? One of the pastors examining me asked me, what is your favorite book? And he, he narrowed it down at least to the New Testament. 27 books in the New Testament. He says, what is your favorite book of the New Testament? I also had to talk to him about what my favorite book of the Old Testament was. And then he asked me to summarize it or outline it for them. What that means is he expected that I would have a favorite book and that I would be familiar with it enough to be able to, on the spot, give an outline of the book, and summarize it for the audience. My choice was, and still is, the book of Romans. The book of Romans. And I am certainly not alone in that choice. Over the centuries, since this book has been written, a great number, great number of Christian men and women who invested their time and their lives into this book, reading it and studying it and and writing about it, were significantly impacted by it. And as a result, it became a book that they deeply loved and cherished and treasured. One that became their favorite in the collection of divine books that are contained in what we call the Bible. The father of the Reformation, and some of you may not even know what that means, what I just said, Reformation, And if you don't, I would encourage you, three months ago we did a, I did a message called Remembering the Reformation. It is the point at which Protestantism was birthed. We are not Catholic because of the Reformation. Okay, and it goes way back many centuries, but you should learn about it as a Christian if you don't know. You are a Protestant Christian. You are in that camp because of the Reformation, at least in part. The father of the Reformation, his name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther. He lived in the 16th century, and he said this of the book of Romans. He said this, that it is really the chief or the most important, okay, chief, most important part of the New Testament. 
and truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, (laughs) but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Now, beloved, we occupy ourselves with things every day. Many of those things are not helpful to us, but Martin Luther said we should occupy ourselves or spend time with the book of Romans every day because it is nutritious or nutrients or food for our soul. We need this book. That's what Martin Luther was saying. Now, is Martin Luther serious that he thinks every Christian should should not only know the book of Romans, but know it word for word by heart. That is, to memorize it. That's what he's saying. I want to show you how far we have come from those who gave their lives for Jesus Christ and devoted themselves to the Scriptures. And when they were called Christian, it meant something. Let me show you how far we've come. Did that shock you? Does that shock you? Because Romans is 16 chapters long. 16 chapters. And this guy has the nerve to suggest that Christians should not only know it, but know it word for word and have it in their heart, have it memorized. Listen, this is why it's so crazy to us to hear that kind of stuff. We have so many distractions in our lives today. Things that we allow to come into our lives and absolutely steal away our time. So, when people in the past... Christian people who lived and talk about things like this, memorizing an entire book of the Bible, we think they're out of their minds. They're crazy. That's impossible. But, beloved, they weren't out of their minds. And guess what else they weren't doing? They weren't spending hours and hours every day on Facebook. Again, guys, I have a Facebook account, okay? So don't take this the wrong way. But they weren't spending enormous amounts of their lives glued to a computer screen. They weren't in front of the TV for hours and hours on end. They didn't have televisions. And they weren't keeping up with all the details of their sports teams or their fantasy football league. They didn't have as many distractions, beloved. And none of those things I just mentioned are bad or evil or sinful. But when we give ourselves to those things, and we have, that is why we wonder, how do I have time for the Word of God? We have allowed all of these things to come into our life and crowd out the most important thing. One of the most important things, certainly, that should be part of our lives, that is the Word of God. So when we talk about favorites, we don't talk about our favorite book of the Bible. We talk about our favorite sports team or our favorite movie or our favorite TV show or our favorite place to vacation. That's what we typically talk about. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. We are worse off for it. And we need to change it. Another significant person from the 16th century, William Tyndale. How many of you, just curious, how many of you know that name, William Tyndale? A few, quite a few. That's good. He's, he's often referred to as the father of the English Bible because of the, the great work he did to translate the Bible from its original languages, Hebrew and Greek, into the English language. Why, why would he do this? Because he wanted everyone to have the word of God in their language so they could read it for themselves, meditate upon it, and be transformed by it. Crazy idea, huh? By the way, he was martyred. He was killed for his Christianity. But he's often referred to as the father of the English Bible. Here's what he said about the book of Romans. It is the principle. Again, another way to say the most important. The principle and most excellent part of the New Testament. And guess what? This guy also urged every Christian to memorize the entire thing. 
Now, all I want to do today is to, I want to, I'm going to go through, I'm going to outline Romans for you here in a little bit. But I want to elevate not only the importance of God's word, but this specific book in your minds. I'm hoping that when you walk out of here, you'll think differently, maybe, about this particular book found in the New Testament, that you will take some time and, and actually look at it and read through it. By the way, it's 16 chapters long, but if you're a fast reader, it'll take you 30 minutes. 30 minutes to get through the entire book. If you're a slower reader, maybe an hour. An hour, beloved. An hour. One modern-day Bible scholar of the 20th century, his name is John R. W. Stott. He died in 2011. Went home to be with the Lord. He was ranked by Time magazine in 2005 as one of the most 100 influential people of the world or in the world, this is what he had to say, this man, John Stott, had to say about the book of Romans in his commentary. Listen to him. He said this, It is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel. The gospel of it is the good news. The good news about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished for sinners in the New Testament. It is the grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament, in the collection of 27 books we call the New Testament. Its message is that human beings are born in sin and slavery, but that Jesus Christ came to set us free. For here is unfolded the good news of freedom. Freedom from the holy wrath of God upon all ungodliness. Freedom from alienation into reconciliation. Freedom from the condemnation of God's law. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from ethnic conflict in the family of God. And freedom to give ourselves to the loving service of God and others. Another great Bible scholar of the 20th century, his name is Alva J. McClain. And I'll be using these men, these resources from these men as we move through the book of Romans. He said of Romans simply, it is the greatest book of the Bible. It is the greatest book of the Bible. That was his opinion. It is mine as well. He also added that those who knew it well, and I think this is important, those who actually know the book of Romans... This is what he found to be true. They were kept from being led astray by all the false doctrines of what he calls cult religions. That is, those religions that pervert and distort the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, like the ones who come and knock on your door. Hello, we're here from the Jehovah Witnesses. Hello, we are Mormons. Hello, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a bunch of other... The other day I had a... Two men come to my door and they wanted to talk to me about God the mother. That's what I said too. I will not tell you what I said to them. I'll tell you in private. They distort the good news concerning Jesus Christ, beloved, these cult religions. But a thorough understanding of Romans will keep you from being deceived by all the nonsense and lies that are constantly put forth under the heading of religious truth. This is why I think so many people, so many Christians are so easily misled on one, in one part. So easily misled into these cult doctrines. They don't know the book of Romans. If you knew it, then when they begin to spew forth all this nonsense about how someone actually is saved or what we have to do in regard to our salvation or who Jesus Christ is as our Savior, you would know that they are speaking lies because you have the book of Romans in your head and in your heart and all the truths that are found there. So it is my hope as we work through this book on Sunday morning that you begin to understand the glorious truths that are contained in it. That if you haven't already, that you too might come to the same conclusion that many others have, that Romans really is certainly the greatest book of the New Testament. Maybe I would say the greatest book of the Bible or at least one of the most important books that are contained within it. So here's a short introduction to the book 
of Romans. This is where you can start taking notes if that's what you do. The book or letter of Romans was written by, who knows? Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, we're going to talk more about him, quite a bit about him, as we move through the letter. Why? Because the Apostle Paul talks more about himself in the book of Romans than any other letter that he wrote. Maybe you didn't know that. He wrote 13, at least 13, of the 27 books, the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament. I say at least because some people believe he might have written the book of Hebrews, and there's still debate about We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews, but many believe it was the Apostle Paul. So that would... That would increase the number to 14. But certainly we know with, for sure that he wrote at least 13 of the 27 books. So basically half of the New Testament. This letter was written sometime around 56 or 57 A.D. And the letter was written to or addressed to, in other words, those who were receiving it, those who Paul was thinking about when he wrote it. It was written to all those in Rome who are beloved or loved by God. That's Romans 1.7. All those who are in Rome that are loved by God. So it was written to Christians in Rome. Written to Christians in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. This Christian group that Paul was writing to was made up of Gentiles and Jews. Gentiles and Jews that had believed in or trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the majority of the group were Gentiles. We're going to talk more about those two groups. We're going to have to as we move through the book of Romans. But if you don't know, historically, Gentiles and Jews did not get along. They did not, that's probably an understatement. They hated each other. They hated each other. And by the way, just so you know, Gentile was a way of referring to someone who's not a Jew. So if you're not a Jew today, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You're a Gentile, scripturally speaking. These groups had a disdain for one another. They didn't like each other. They didn't spend time with each other. They despised each other. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new reality occurred. A new reality occurred. Believing Jews believing in Jesus Christ, and believing Gentiles were worshiping and serving God together because of their shared faith in Jesus Christ and his sin-bearing sacrifice on their behalf. But that doesn't mean, beloved, that they didn't have problems getting along or accepting one another or ministering together. So when we come to the book of Romans... Paul addresses that in part. He addresses those problems, the the unwillingness to accept each other completely by explaining what the foundation of their unity is, the unity that exists between Jews and Gentiles who know Jesus Christ, which we will come to see is the fact that Jews and Gentiles are both under God's condemnation as sinners. And both Jews and Gentiles need a righteousness they do not have to be acceptable to God. And both Jews and Gentiles are made acceptable to God based on a common righteousness that they receive by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the argument is, they should fully accept and embrace one another because God has fully accepted both of them on the same terms through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we'll we'll make application to this, but even within this local body here, we're not divided up so much as Jews and Gentiles, but certainly look around. There's all kinds of different cultures here. Different skin colors, different backgrounds. And this becomes very important to us in regard to the unity that we have or should have because of our common faith in Jesus Christ that has made us acceptable to God. Therefore, if you have been made acceptable to God the very same way that I've been made acceptable to God, then you should be fully acceptable to me. It's what bonds us together. Regardless of our race or our gender or where we were born. You understand? 
So we not, may not have this Jewish-Gentile tension, but we still have tension. And I say we, generally speaking, there is still tension among people and even in the church, among different races or different backgrounds or different upbringings. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. In regard to the subject of righteousness, it comes up over and over and over again in the book of Romans. So I'm talking about, listen, the unity of Jew and Gentiles based on this common righteousness that they have received through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that word righteousness, that idea, that concept keeps coming up over and over and over again. Almost every chapter in the book of Romans. Focusing on that particular theme or that subject of righteousness, it runs throughout the book. Bible scholars have used it to outline the book, to give it an outline. And I will use and want to share with you the outline that has been helpful to me, because there's different ways to outline it, in understanding the different parts or sections of the book of Romans and how they fit together, how they fit together. So after the opening or the greetings and introduction in the first part of the letter, and you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. You might want to do that and just kind of track along with me. Page 939 in those blue Bibles for using those. In this first part here, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to verse 17, you basically have a greeting and an introduction by Paul. Okay, We're going to start looking at that next week. He's just introducing himself. He's greeting people. A typical letter. Once we step into verse 18, there's a section that goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Okay, that's a section, 118 to 320. At least that's how I'm outlining it. That's how I'm going to look at it. And we call that section in this outline condemnation. Condemnation. That is, according to God's word, all of humanity is unrighteous unrighteous before God, and therefore all come under his condemnation. His condemnation. To be, to be acceptable to a perfectly righteous God, we need perfect righteousness that we do not have and cannot obtain on our own since we are all sinners. This section of Romans is sometimes referred to as the bad news that makes the gospel message the best one anyone can hear or tell. What do I mean? Well, as we move through the book of Romans, we'll get the good news of the gospel. But first, we need the bad news about us, our condition. And it is this bad news, it's understanding this bad news and accepting it, that makes the good news so sweet, so rich, so full. Let me illustrate that for you. If I told a multi-millionaire that I paid off his debts and stuck another million in his bank account, how excited do you think he would be? So what? I'm a multi-millionaire. I really don't need your money, Jeremy. I'm self-sufficient. But if I told a poor man, a very poor man, in debt up to his ears. So much debt that he will never, ever, ever be able to work his way out of it. He has no hope, no education, no connections, nothing. There is no light at the end of his tunnel. If I told that man that I paid off all of his debts, and I not only did that, but I stuck a million dollars in his bank account, making him rich in a moment. What do you think the response of that man would be to that news? What do you think? That would have been the best day of his life. Huh? I mean, there's some of you, if I told you I paid off all your debts and stuck a million dollars in your bank account. I would say most of you, right? Because there's probably not any millionaires in here. And if there are, I want to talk to you because we need money. <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. They would be excited, beloved, and that's what the first part of Romans does. Condemnation. It levels you. 
It leaves you indebted up to your ears. You see, there is no hope for me. I am a sinner through and through, and I stand condemned before God. There is no light at the end of this tunnel. And thanks be to God that that's not the end of Romans. It's not the end. I try, I promise you, I don't know why I did it this morning, but I was watching Joel Olstein for about 20 minutes. That's all I could take. And you know how I feel about Joel Olstein. If any of you watch Joel Olstein, I'm just going to tell you right now, he's a false teacher. If you want to come up and talk to me about that, that's fine. But he is, and I stand by that statement. Joel Olstein will never go to the first part of Romans. I promise you. I promise you. That church will never hear about condemnation. They'll never hear about sin. All they hear about, it's the same thing they hear about every Sunday is if they can visualize their health and their wealth and their success and see the greatness that they have within them, then forces in the universe will start to work. These are, this is what he's saying. We'll start to work and all of it will come about. That's what you need to do. You need to visualize or imagine you're strong and you're healthy and you're disease free. Blah, 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 blah. He'll never ever talk to them about condemnation. It's always about them and how they can become more successful and get promotions at work and become healthy and blah and so on and so forth. Beloved, we need this stuff called condemnation. We need to hear it. We may not want to hear it, but we need to hear it. And we need to never forget it. So if you've heard it, you need to hear it again. Why? So that we might truly understand the significance of the rest of Romans. So that when it, when we hear the rest of Romans, we go, whoa! Whoa, God! You are unbelievably gracious and merciful! I cannot believe you did that for me! It causes us to worship this God. If we understand condemnation. And it crushes, beloved, any pride or feelings of self-righteousness that so often rise up within us and give us a feeling of superiority one to another. Trust me. We move through this section of Romans and you stick with us and you do it. You'll have no room for any more self-righteousness. So because of the unrighteousness of All mankind, all of humanity is deserving of God's condemnation. That's Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20. The second section begins in chapter 3, verse 21. And it'll extend all the way to chapter 5, verse 21. Okay? 321 to 521. This section, we're going to call it justification. Justification. So we have condemnation. Now we have justification. We're going to talk more about that word when we get to that section. But here is the basic idea of justification. It is this. It is God declaring a sinner to be just or right with him. Not on the basis of their righteousness. They don't have any. Once you get through the first part of Romans, that'll be very clear. They don't have any of their own righteousness. So they are declared right with God, not based on their righteousness, they have none, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited, or here's a word, imputed. Imputed. You're going to hear that word many times. Imputed. Credited to the Christian. Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to the Christian so that they are made perfectly acceptable to God. Beloved, that's crazy stuff. I'm just telling you. That's amazing stuff. The believing sinner is declared or considered righteous before God, not because of what he or she has done or ever will do, but because of what Jesus Christ has already done. Do you understand that? Well, we'll understand it better as we move through that section. Listen, beloved. The message of Christianity is unique. It is unique. You know how people say, oh, there's so many religions in the world. Aren't they the same? No! 
Was that loud for you, Heather? I saw her shake like that, so. No, 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 no. No, they are not all the same. All of them outside of Christianity are basically the same. Christianity is very unique because it's not a message of self-improvement or somehow earning your way into heaven or earning favor with God or doing enough that he finally says, all right, I'm happy with you. Come on in. It is not that message. But if you look at other religions of the world in some way, in some form, it is exactly that message. You know what reincarnation is? That's the person trying over and over and over again, one life after another, to get good enough that they can finally go to whatever it is they're going to go to, heaven or be with their God or go back into the universe in some crazy, mysterious way. I don't know. But achieving a level of perfection. That's what reincarnation's about. And as you begin to study the other religions of the world, they're exactly the same. Oh, they have different forms and different instructions and different rules and regulations, but they all say the same thing. They're religions of self-improvement, earning or meriting your way to some type of utopia or to God. Christianity is not that. Christianity says that every person is morally bankrupt. You know what bankrupt means, right? They're morally bankrupt. Unable to do anything in and of themselves to make themselves good or right with God. That's what Christianity says. That's what makes it stand out and makes it unique among all the other religions of the world. And then Christianity says, but through Jesus Christ and only through him, only Every sinner who trusts in him is made acceptable to God and will remain acceptable to him because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ's righteousness has been credited to their account. Do you understand that? That's significant, beloved. That's huge. That's Christianity. So we have condemnation. We have justification. Look at your Bibles. Romans chapter 6. Now we finish chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. And extending all the way to chapter 8 verse 39. Chapter 6 verse 1 to chapter 8 verse 39. Which will take you to the end of chapter 8. We have what we're going to call sanctification. Condemnation. Justification. Sanctification. Now. These are probably, I'm guessing, words that you do not use on a daily basis. Some of you, right? You don't, you know, sit around the coffee cooler and talk about sanctification, justification, and things of this nature. But they are significant words. They are significant words that you as a Christian should know. Not only should you know them, but you should understand them and you should be able to explain them to someone else. And they are words in the Bible. We'll see justification. We'll see sanctification. And we'll see the explanation of those things. They're important for you to know. When I speak to someone who's in the football world, by that I mean they are football fans, they know every term, right? I'm not a, I'm not a big football guy. When they begin to talk, I don't always know what they're talking about. But they do. And then another football guy gets another football guy. And they have that language and they talk, right? Christians have a language too. You need to learn it if you're a Christian. You need to know it. You need to know these words. Justification, sanctification. They're huge, beloved. And if you don't know them and you have no desire to know them, something's not right. Something's not right. So, sanctification. Here's an easy kind of understanding to give you up front. It's the process of God's ongoing work in believers. It's a process of his ongoing work, God's work in believers through the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit that indwells them to transform them or change them into the image of Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. We're going to talk more about that, but that's real basic. Real basic, simple kind of definition. Well, what do I mean by change or transform into the image of Jesus Christ. In part, it means this. 
that Christians, as new creations in Christ, should progressively or increasingly over time, through the process of sanctification, abandon their sin and manifest the righteousness of Jesus Christ in their life. That's, that's what it is. That's what, that's what sanctification is, in part, in the Christian life. They are abandoning their sin more and more and pursuing and practicing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are becoming more and more like the person of Jesus Christ in the, in the sense of his righteousness. That righteousness is being manifested in their life or being shown in their life or demonstrated in their life. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens by believing the truths of the gospel, which are detailed in the book of Romans. So if you don't know the book of Romans, then you can't believe necessarily all the truths of the gospel. You won't know them. So, for instance, when Paul says, you're dead to sin, you're dead as a Christian, but you are alive in Christ. Therefore, consider yourselves no longer alive to sin or that you are dead to sin, meaning sin no longer masters you, Christian. That's why you can say no to sin now. That's why you have been set free. That's what it means. Free to live for God. The chains that bound you called sin have been broken. Now you've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. See, back to Joe Olstein. All he wants you to believe about is you're strong. And you can see getting that job promotion. And you can see getting that big house. You just got to visualize it. And you got to have faith. I want to throw up every time I listen to him. That's all he talks about. The Bible doesn't talk about that stuff. You know what it talks about? Having faith in the gospel that you've been set free from sin. So you'll stop sinning and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's Christianity. That's Christianity, beloved. All this, most of this nonsense on television is not Christianity, although they call themselves Christians. Where am I? I have no idea. So how does this happen? Well, it happens. How does this process happen? Like I said, it happens by believing the truth of the gospel and, guess what? Relying on the strength of the Holy Spirit. His power. Because you don't have it and I don't have it. I need the power of God who dwells within every Christian in order to live for God. That's what I'm going to rely on. I'm going to believe the truth of the gospel and I'm going to rely on the power of God that indwells me to live for Him, to serve Him, to abandon sin and walk in righteousness. We're going to discuss all that in more detail. That section of Romans is awesome. Every section is, but that one I just love. It's beautiful, it's wonderful because it will set you free. It will set you free. If you believe it. So condemnation, justification, sanctification. Now we get to Romans 9. Romans 9. Verse 1. And that'll take us all the way to the end of chapter 11. Verse 36. This section, I'm going to call it vindication. I didn't come up with these terms. Someone else did. I'm just using this outline, just so you're clear. Vindication. Or... The defense, that's basically what it means. The defense, in this case, of God's righteousness. So, remember I told you there's this theme of righteousness. So we start with, there is nobody who's righteous. They're all unrighteous. Then we get to justification. How can we be declared righteous before God? Then sanctification. How does that process start to play out in our life so that righteousness begins to manifest itself or show itself in our life? We turn from sin and we turn to to God and serving and following Him. Now we have vindication. This time it's the defense of righteousness, particularly God's righteousness. What is that all about? Well, we're going to cover it more fully when we get there. But this is important. Paul will address in this section God's dealings with the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. And what he's going to demonstrate is that God is just or righteous in all that he has done with Israel. He is just and righteous in all that he has done, all that he will do, and also all that he will do in the future. Forgive me. So all that he has done and all that he will do in the future, God is righteous. Now listen, God made promises to the nation of Israel. And those promises, not all of them, have been fulfilled. But Paul makes it clear, they will be fulfilled according to God's perfect plan and his timetable. 
So in chapter 9, we basically see Paul explaining God's sovereign selection of the nation of Israel. His sovereign selection of the nation of Israel. Chapter 10, we see Israel's rejection of God. God chooses them. They reject him. Chapter 11, but that cannot break God's promises. You'll see God's future restoration of the children of Israel or the nation of Israel. God has been and will continue to be righteous and just in all his dealings with the nation of Israel. Which is important for us to know because you have to ask the question that, and it'll we'll, make more sense when we get there, especially if you don't understand how does Israel and all this relate to us now and, and the Old Testament with the New. We're going to have to talk about all that as we move through the, the book of Romans. But God had made promises to the nation of Israel and they were unfulfilled. So did God break his promises? And Paul says, absolutely not. And he's going to explain those promises will be fulfilled. And that's an important question for us to know as a church. Because right before we get to chapter 9, Paul's talking about, and nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, I say. And so the Christian would have to wonder, well, can I rely on that promise? Because it looks like Israel has been left out in the cold. And Paul says, no. You can rely on the promise. Israel has not been left out in the cold. They have rejected their God, but it will not remain that way forever. They will be restored one day in the future. Amazing stuff. God is vindicated. He is righteous. He always has been. He always will be. Therefore, you can count on every promise he has made to you. He will never break it. He is a just and righteous God. He is not like men. He cannot lie. You see, I get fired up about this. See, if I was to, I've seen some of you talk about football. And you get like this, like this. You get like I'm being right now. And that's fun, man. I love it. But I would love for all of us to get that crazy about the word of God, about what he has said, about our future, beloved, about our reality, about our salvation, about our Christianity. Okay, finally, so we have condemnation, justification, sanctification, vindication. The last main section, just going to call this application. It begins in Romans 12, verse 1, and extends all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. This whole section, we're going to call it application. In this section, Paul addresses several different ways in which the Christian can and should exercise or practice righteousness. Okay? Righteousness. So... We will see how Christians, sinners who have been saved now through Jesus Christ, are supposed to live, and more importantly, who they are supposed to live for. Jesus Christ, God. And then finally, and again, we'll get to that section. That has a lot of good stuff, very practical stuff for us to consider. Finally, the book closes out, chapter 15, verse 14, finishes... At the end, 1627, Paul makes a few final comments about his ministry, his travel plans. We're going to talk about that when we get to these sections. What was going on? Why was Paul traveling? And then he has some final greetings. That's the outline of the book. That's a brief synopsis or summary of the book of Romans. That's really all I have for you today. And that only took 50 minutes. I truly believe that as we slowly make our way through the book of Romans, beloved, together we will or are going to be blessed because of all the glorious truths, life-transforming truths that are contained in this book. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Some of you already have this as a priority in your life. Some of you, I don't know if you do or not, but I'm going to ask all of you to do this, to make it a priority in your life to be here every Sunday. Every Sunday, without fail, unless, of course, you're deadly sick, I get that. Or some of you have, you can't get out of work, I get that too. But make it a priority in your schedule. Beloved, think about this with me. I'm just thinking about this this morning driving here because this is like such a basic Christian discipline to at least once a week be with the people of God and come under the Word of God. It's basic. This is not advanced Christianity. That's basic Christianity. And I talk to people, not you, but people sometimes, and they say, listen, I'm a Christian. I don't think I have to, 
I don't think I need to be in church every Sunday to be a Christian. Well, there's truth. You don't, being in church every Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. But let me ask you a question. Where do you think that idea originated from? Do you think it was God saying to them, listen, the whole church thing, being together with the people of God and praising me and singing to me and coming under my word and being transformed by that, it's just not that big of a deal. You think that's where it came from? Or do you think it maybe came from somebody else? Or maybe their own sin nature that wants to keep you from the word of God. I'm going to tell you something. The fact that we are going into Romans right now, you just wait how much you are challenged to not show up. Wait, it's coming. You will be challenged to not be here. Because the enemy does not want you to hear this truth. So get one on them. Read the whole thing tonight. And then read it tomorrow night. And show up on Sunday. Sunday after Sunday. And oh, by the way, here's a phrase. Because I have some time. I never have time. That's crazy. Here's a phrase. I was taught this. I didn't come up with it. I don't, I've almost come up with nothing. I basically just hear other people and I repeat to you as long as it's good. He said, Sunday morning starts Saturday night. Sunday morning starts Saturday night. You know what that means? Not, this is not legalism. You can't get good with God by doing this. This is just helpful, practical advice. It means that I start thinking about Sunday morning on Saturday night, which means that I'm not going to stay out till midnight, 1 a.m., partying my little brains out. And then be all groggy and go, I can't make it. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't wake up in the morning, so I didn't come to church. Or I came, but I slept through most of your sermon. You're sleeping through me. That's very challenging. It is. It is, because I'm loud and obnoxious and I'm in your face a lot. You sleep through that. You are really tired. And you need some sleep. So I let you have it. I let you have it. But get that sleep the night before. Be ready. Think more seriously about this, beloved. Men spilt their blood, their lives were taken in order for us to have this book so freely like we do, laying all over this place in our own, our own language. They sacrificed their very lives. When you study church history, you're blown away, and it just makes you come before and go, wow, this thing is important. And when we look at this particular book, what you're going to find is, wow, this book is really important for my life, for my Christian life. That I might live for him and glorify my great God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your beautiful people. They are beautiful. You love them. You are zealous for them. You gave your son for them, for me, for us. And Father, the truths of that, the deep, rich truths of the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on behalf of sinners are contained in this very book we call Romans found within the New Testament. Oh, Father, help us as your people to make the word of God a priority, not only on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, certainly, but also on Sunday as we come together to take a look at the, the wonders the treasures that are contained within. Father, I, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts that we would pick this Bible up today and tomorrow and we would start reading the book of Romans. Regardless of what other reading we're doing, we would give 30 minutes, an hour, to reading this incredible book, Father. And through your Spirit, you would begin to transform our lives as we hear and see with our eyes and that truth and it enters into our mind and, and takes place into our heart and begins to, to have its way with us. Father, have your way with us. Because it's a good way. It's the best way. It's the greatest way. May we believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.